the lessons that I've learned from that uh, is, and actually I'll probably convey this to anybody starting a company, is immerse yourself in your customer's business. Don't immerse yourself in your own business. That's our guest for this week, Andy Yeoman, co-founder and CEO of Consirus. Hello, Matthew Grant here, partner at Instec London and host of this, our weekly podcast. Consirus is one of the most well-known companies in London to have emerged in the last few years, providing analytics for insurers. And as we'll hear shortly, they got a recent boost with another round of funding. But they are also building up a strong client base. Andy talks about what the company is up to, but once again, there's a lot to learn for anyone wondering just how people manage to build a company and get on with the rest of their life. Now, if you're listening to this in March 2020, then you may still have a chance to see Chris Gill of Consirus on stage with us at our next evening event in London. But do book soon as we've only space for 250 people and our events are selling out fast. Also, a quick plug for our weekly newsletter. This is our roundup of what we see happening around the world, of what we think is important and relevant for you to know, whichever part of the insurance and technology world you come from. It's freshly made each week from only the finest ingredients. Sign up at www.instec.london. Anyway, enough about us. Let's hear what Andy Yeoman is up to at Consirus. Andy, it's great to be here. We've known each other for a few years, so I'm really pleased to have a chance to sit down to you and learn about what's been happening at Consirus recently and also about some of your own experience in building a company. So you've had a career working for technology companies. A lot of them have got a theme around connectivity and data. You worked at Trimble. Uh, we are building and acquiring businesses in transportation, oil and gas and insurance markets, so a bit of background there. Um, and then you founded Consirus in 2012 with Craig Hollingworth. Now, according to Crunchbase, you've raised $34 million, and most recently you had the news of your Series B round this month. But you're not just raising money. You've been in the news quite a lot recently for signing up some significant new clients, and we'll talk a bit about that in a minute. Uh, so thanks for carving out some time. And I also know you had your uh, event last night talking about some of the things you're doing on commercial fleets. So how did that go? Last night was an interesting event. So last night was one of our first big forays into our fleet product, into our automotive fleet product. Uh, and we held an event at the Transport Museum uh, over in Covent Garden, which I think I was more excited about than anyone else. We had 150 people from across the fleet and transportation markets there, including some of the biggest brokers and TPAs and some of the very big fleets in the market, looking at the product that we've launched for automotive, which we believe will be as transformational as that from marine. So it's, a, it's an exciting time for, for, for the business as a whole. Good. Well, we look forward to hearing more about that. And actually, we've got uh, one of your team talking at our event on March the 30th, specifically about what you're doing in that area. And TPA, just for people that aren't familiar with that abbreviation, third party administrators, people looking after claims handling and, and things like that. Excellent. So, Andy, you spent 22 years, uh, I guess, working for other people. Uh, so what was it that took you out of the sort of safe world of employment into starting up your own company? Uh, it's a good question, actually. It's, a, it's a, a little bit of a sad story, but it has a happy ending. It's as soon as close to where we are. So uh, back in 2011, I was working for Trimble, and I had a, a job that people would really like. Actually, I quite enjoyed my job. I was a sort of corporate troubleshooter going around acquiring businesses and trying to turn businesses around and you know, 
enjoying the glamour of international travel that we've all experienced. Uh, but, but sadly, one Sunday morning, I got a call to say that one of my colleagues, who also did a similar job to me, travelled 40 weeks a year, uh, he unfortunately passed away on the plane. It made me sit up and realise that, you know, I had three kids, and I wouldn't want that to be my story. So I, I, I did what you've got to see, see on the movies. I walked into my chief executive and said, right, that I'm quitting. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I know that I don't want that to be my story. So what I then had to figure out was, well, what exactly am I going to do? Uh, and that's where Craig and I came together. Uh, and we figured out that there was an opportunity uh, in what was then called the Internet of Things yeah, to, cr to create a company into that space. So we figured that we'd create a lifestyle company. Uh, and if you fast forward, in fact, to the fundraising, what I've discovered over the last few years is that having a lifestyle company and raising money, those two things aren't actually compatible. So uh, I think one of the questions you're going to ask is uh, any lessons for people out there? I think my biggest lesson is lifestyle care company or venture back company. You can't have both. Yeah, I guess that is a challenge a lot of people have. They start off founding a company because they've got a real passion for doing something and at some point realize that, as you say, uh, if you choose it as a lifestyle, you get a very different outcome than if you're actually trying to raise some money and actually make some serious growth. But for people who don't actually understand what a lifestyle company is, what, what would you, how would you describe that? Well, for me, a lifestyle company was basically something that gave me freedom, uh, that I could come and go as I wish, uh, spend more time with my family and kids, uh, and not have the pressures of being in a large corporate with a large target uh, of, of revenue above, above your head, as it were. So with Consirus, we talked a bit about what you're doing on the, uh, the sort of motor side, but what, is, what are the problems you're solving with Consirus today? So our, our primary customers, as you know, are insurers, and I think what we address is, is an existential issue for them, uh, which is in order for insurers' company to, to flourish, they need to you know, have products, sell products which are relevant and be able to sell those at a profit yeah, and make, make money out of it. And if you look into the marine market... Uh, the products are absolutely relevant, but I think the headline stats are that there's only been two years out of the last 15 years uh, that they've been able to make money. And, and that's not a sustainable, sustainable situation. What we have realized is that we are existing in a world which is full of data. Uh, and, you know, we use the phrase which was, quote, unquote, in the future. In the future, will there be more data or less yeah, well, we all agree, I think there's going to be more. Uh, is it going to be more varied or less varied? Well, it'll be more varied as well. Uh, and then is it going to come faster or so it's going to come faster? Uh, is it going to be uh, more accurate or less accurate? Well, it'll probably be more accurate. Uh, and then you come up with the question that was, do you think that you're going to need to use more of it or less of it? Uh, and do you really need more of it sooner? And that's where the gnarly issues sort of come up against. Is that, so we are in a situation, where, and everybody knows this, there's more data, not less, it's more varied, it's, et cetera. And so when we look into our, our customers, we have a situation where they want to make money, and we believe the way for them to make more money is to be able to uh, use this data. Uh, and when we look at the, the, the insurers, I'm not sure they have necessarily the infrastructure to be able to take on that data. Uh, if they have the infrastructure to take it on, they may not have the tools yeah, to understand that data because this data is time series data. It's quite complex. It's difficult to manipulate. And if they have the data, the, the infrastructure and the tools, do they have the skills to be able to manipulate that? And if they have the skills to manipulate it, can they then use that information in applications which actually bring it to the fore? So can they make it relevant and have it available at that, at that point? So we're solving that 
that, that problem is, let's bring the, the world's data to life and actually turn that into decisions which ultimately turn into uh, products and profits for, for, for the insurers and their clients. And the first area you've taken on or you've you, you built the products for is in marine, which traditionally has been one of the areas where it's been hard to get data. The mariners or the underwriters tend to be uh, quite old-fashioned. Did you just decide to go and tackle the hardest problem first of all, or actually was it the reverse, where you saw there was a, a real opportunity out there to make a difference? I get asked, asked this question a lot, which is, how did you end up in marine? When we looked into the insurance market, we came from a background of telematics. And the challenge with telematics, or the opportunity with telematics, it's all about disaggregation of risk. Uh, but then you end up with this sort of bit of a catch-22 situation is, in order to dis- disaggregate the risk, I need data. In order to get the data, I need to install a box in the vehicle. And in order to install the box in the vehicle, I need to be on risk. So I'm like, well, hang on a moment. So I need to be on risk to be able to decide whether I want to be on risk. Yeah. So that sense seemed a little ironic. So we spent some time, this is back in 2015, 2016, going, is there a market where all of this data already exists that we could get our hands on it uh, and we could use that uh, to create behavioral profiles? And when we looked into the market, we saw that the marine market was out there yeah, and we're based here in London. Yeah, and we thought, well, we like the marine market. It's a global market. All this data exists. I can access the market from, from London. There's nobody else doing this. Uh, so we just did what a good startup should do, is we did a pivot and we went and stuck a flag right in the middle of the marine market and said, we're here to help. And that's how we ended up in that marine space. And strangely enough, we then spent many years just trying to immerse ourselves in that market and understand how the market worked. And I think one of the the lessons that I've learned from that uh, is, and actually I'll probably convey this to anybody starting a company, is immerse yourself in your customer's business. Don't immerse yourself in your own business. Because if you understand how, in this case, how marine insurance works, then I think you can start to add value to it. And that's probably the biggest thing that we did. Rather than being a, having data, we, we really took time out to understand how the market worked. And I've clearly been successful because, as I mentioned earlier, you've started to sign up some, some pretty significant companies. And part of that, I believe, has been that you get to the decision makers in these organizations, and, and that can be hard often for people in an early stage company. So what sort of techniques have you used to be able to get in front of the people that you know, really do control the budget and, and drive decisions, particularly, again, in, in this quite traditional industry where perhaps they're not actually looking for some new technology? That's a really good question, actually. Um, there's a word in your question which I'm not sure about what techniques. It sounds like we're, we're trying to, you know, uh, well, if I call them on a Thursday, yeah, or send them a cake, or give them a book, or whatever. That would be a great technique. Uh, but actually, I think the, the, the biggest technique is to be relevant. Uh, so uh, you think about it in your own life. If someone comes to see you, uh, then if, they've got, if they can add value to the conversation and actually help you extend the way that you think, I think that that's, that, that's good. So we went, went out of our way to publish articles, uh, to publish blogs, to speak at events, to show that actually we're trying to think through how the industry could change and how value could be added. Um, So when we go to see a customer, we usually go with a theory of their business. So we've seen your business in the market. We've seen, uh, we understand that this is the the areas that you're trying to go into. We believe that actually if you could do this or you could do that, that might actually help your your organization. So typically if I'm going into a cheap exec, I would have already spent time. Yeah, with, the, with with other other members in their team, so I understand their business a little bit. So the conversation is useful rather than going along and saying, "Hey, listen, we've got these features and these functions." Um, that's not usually a, a something that one of the senior execs is going to be interested in. 
Yeah, although I suspect you're being slightly modest or maybe you're just uh, not prepared to share your techniques because <laughs> just that very comment about getting in front of the chief executive is something uh, not not everyone can do. And actually, funny enough, you mentioned about cakes. I know one of our regular listeners actually has won some business by sending them some some cakes. So it, sometimes it, it does work. But you've certainly been able to get in front of some, some yeah. excellent people. Well, actually, let me give you two things. So to, to, be, to be clear, we do absolutely have a cake-based strategy. Yeah, so uh, if you sign up with Consirus as a customer, we send you a dozen or so uh, Consirus branded cupcakes as an, as, an, as an incentive. So big fan of cake, being, especially being here in borough markets. If there were a technique, it's remarkably simple, uh, which is I contact the chief exec directly uh, and ask if I can have 15 minutes of their time to run some ideas by them uh, and ask them some questions. I don't think it's actually any more complicated than that. Um, but we never go into uh, a senior exec's office with the, I never go in with the goal of selling something. I just go into the goal of tr trying to understand. Yeah, and within that, that is, I think, the really important part. You position it as you want to ask them some questions as opposed to you want to come in there and sell something. And that's certainly you know, my advice to people is if you're trying to get into a market, don't try and sell too soon. And your point about you immerse yourself in this space is actually use the opportunity to do the research. And if as part of that research, someone turns around and goes, I want to buy this, then they're coming to you as opposed to you selling to them. Uh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, our number one value of our company is trying to add value to our customers. So if you go into the you go into the conversation and say, how do I add value? Then I think that the conversation becomes a lot easier. And and clearly it's working because there's, you know, there's some of the companies you've listed publicly, Willis Ree, Marsh, Hiscox, Chaucer, Sculled, you know, all well-known names, not just in marine, but more broadly. Uh, and also they've got a lot of people knocking on their door. Uh, so just like to talk a little bit about the product. So Quest is your is your main product. How does that fit into the workflow of the users? So it, it changes the, the, the workflow in some respects. Um, so if you think of, uh, we tend to think of value chains, rightly or wrongly. Um, I'm not sure that our customers definitely think of them as value chains, but we think of a value chain. So in an insurer, one of the value chains that you that you have is you know, the actuarial team is one mem one part of it. Then you have the underwriters. Then you have the claims teams. You, know, you might have exposure management, etc. But actually, we've mapped it out with a few others. So we have uh, the the actuaries, the underwriters, something we would call pre-claim, you know, first notification of loss, and claims managers. So what we're trying to do is actually join these people up uh, rather than keep them in silos. Uh, one of the questions I used to ask a lot was if I go into an organisation and say, if you started to see a set of claims coming in for a given vessel, type of vessel from a given port, how long would it take for that information to get from your claims team through your actuarial process and into your underwriting? And the answer we usually got was, I don't know, maybe two years, but probably never. Uh, which I likened to, it's almost like having, trying to fill a bath, but putting one person in charge of the taps and one person in charge of the plug and neither of them talking to each other and wondering why it's either overflowing or never filling up. Um, so uh, our workflow is about joining that up. Uh, and as soon as we've been able to explain that to our customers and show this is how we're joining it up and this is what the benefit of it is, you know, people are reasonably keen to adopt it. Your comment about um, the marine industry not necessarily having the most contemporary technology uh, is very well put. So some of what we, the value that we add is just a very contemporary uh, technology framework. Uh, and so we're picking up the benefits of some good old-fashioned IT yeah, and then plugging in some of the machine learning and AI elements into that. I want to come back to old-fashioned IT in a minute, but just keep on going with the way Quest sits in the workflow. So you tap into some data from the shipping, some of the... AIS data, which is publicly available, uh, that's used to help 
characterise the risk and as part of the underwriting process is also the portfolio management. Is that is that a sort of a fair summary of the? Yeah. Request? So we've we have uh, uh, quite an extraordinary data asset now. So we have. Uh, more than 500 billion records of data in our platform with something like 2 trillion data points. So we've ingested more than 20 different data sets about the marine industry. So everything from every vessel, where it was built, when it was built, uh, what are the characteristics of that vessel, who's owned it, when, for how long, who's been managing it, who's been maintaining it. And then we combine it with movement data. So the AIS that you, you talk about is a, effectively a black box on the, the vessels that's put out as part of the International Maritime Organization. So mar maritime law says you need to be able to transmit where you are every 15 minutes from a vessel safety perspective. So you can see what's around you to avoid collisions. So we've repurposed that data and said, actually, if I can see where you are every 15 minutes, then I can effectively use that as, as, as tracking data. So we've turned those billions of records of data into proprietary data. So we now have created features. So from the obvious to the obtuse. So the obvious things are, well, where is the vessel? What's been its, how far has it traveled? What's been its average speed? To then obtuse factors of standard deviation from normal um, sailing paths, et cetera, and um, navigation channels. And then we take, take that uh, and we, we do a second form of uh, manipulation on the data, which is where we combine that data with customers' data. So much in the way that Google understands the relationship between websites that it's spidered, the data that you type in for a search, and the results that you get, we understand the relationship between uh, behaviors, whether it be ownership or movement behaviors, yeah, policies that you write, and claims that you have. So. That, that intersection of behaviours, exposures and claims is the data that we really understand. And that allows our customers to look at some new uh, a new piece of business that's been offered to them. So if you're sat in the box at Lloyd's or in the company's market, if someone that presents that with your new piece of business, we can give them a price for that business and explain why that price exists and what it would mean to their portfolio. And we do that in less than five seconds. Uh, whereas it might take an underwriter you know, one hour, 24 hours, a week to do that process in the traditional environment. We do that in, in, in sub five seconds. Get them to a price and explain why that price is the price and what it would mean if they signed that business. Okay, very interesting. And AIS stands for? Automatic Identification System. Great, thanks. Now, I heard recently uh, in the motor world or just in the more conventional car insurance world that one of the questions that's asked people is, do you keep your car in a garage? And actually, if someone replies yes, it actually is taken as a negative because the reality is today, certainly in the UK, uh, no one keeps their car in a garage. So anybody that's answering yes to that either is, is probably is lying. It's sort of counterintuitive. Uh, is there any data you see coming out of the, the information you're tracking or you're getting access to that is actually counterintuitive in the way you might use it to measure risks for ships? Absolutely. There. So some of the... Uh, without getting into specific details, some of the measures that the industry has been using for a long time in terms of how it uh, allocates risk and how it allocates reinsurance costs, etc., we've proved is not actually tracking to claims. So it's, uh, in, in some respects, exactly as you said, it's the inverse of what the industry has been using. Uh, we're starting to see that behavioural factors are emerging that actually show that the way the industry has been operating isn't 100% correct. Uh, in truth, though, for a, for a given vessel or a given fleet, it's actually an amalgam of the traditional factors uh, and the 
uh, and, and the new behavioral factors. So I'll give you a simple, a simple example. If you look at total losses, uh, one of the things that's known is that the younger the vessel, the less likely is a, of a total loss. But if you have 100 sort of young vessels uh, of an equal age, uh, then age can't play a factor. If you take age out, then it starts to be behavioral factors, uh, which, has been, which, which has been unknown uh, to date. Good. And then talking about data, you, you alluded to this earlier on, um, and you've, you've reported publicly a few partnerships. It, it, how, to what extent do you rely on, on third-party data providers out there to complement things like AIS or your own analytics, or indeed your clients' data? So we use uh, we don't originate any data ourselves. So all of our all of our data, all of our information starts off with uh, us procuring third-party data sets. Um, we have about twenty today, about twenty different data sets. Uh, that's growing dramatically. We have about 100 uh, new data sets that we're currently evaluating. Um, and it's a case of bringing those things together. And so for anybody out there who may have a data set that might be of interest to you, uh, are there examples of some of the challenges you've had or the data sets you'd love to get your hands on if only they were available? Yeah, so the challenge we have is actually proving that they have relevance uh, and they're not a proxy for something else. So uh, again, we test all of the data that we come in to see Actually, does it give us additional insight in terms of improving loss ratios or understanding you know, the predictability of claims, etc.? Uh, so that's a, that, that, that is a challenge. I think that one of some of the data sets that we're interested in, they fall on two, two axes. One is that you know, AIS is great uh, as a set of data. Uh, unfortunately, it can be manipulated by, by, by the fleets. They can switch their transponder on, or they can switch it off. They can change their IMO. So when we, have, we have ways of detecting that and cleaning that. But actually, if you had more frequent data, that might be value. So higher resolution data could, could be interesting. And then we're starting to see the emergence of more information around cargo. So uh, sensors in the cargo for the condition of the cargo, etc. Uh, so as the cost of the devices comes down and communications becomes ubiquitous and free, uh, there's going to be more, more data and more detailed data about the, the nature of the cargo itself. And that's, again, more, more, more interesting. We're starting to see more of that being used in the applications. Yeah, certainly cargo has always been one of the challenging areas of risk to understand, just given all the movement around the world and the, and the aggregation. So just talking around, about around the world, so you've mainly been uh, selling into UK. You've got, I think, a couple of clients in Europe. We've actually got 50% of our listeners who are outside of the, U, outside of the UK, uh, quite a few in the US. Uh, have you got a solution that's sort of outside of the UK or, or for companies operating outside of the UK that you can sell to them? Yeah, so they, uh, absolutely we have. So uh, every one of our customers today, I'm trying to think almost without exception, uses our product on an international basis. So whilst their companies are often domiciled here, uh, many of them aren't, um, we see our product being used internationally already today. So it, it copes today with, you know, with multiple currencies, it copes with time zones, it copes with language. All of those things are, are available within the, within the application today. Uh, as part of our Series B funding, uh, we are looking to expand our geographic footprint of our organisation. So today we service all of our customers out of our UK office. Uh, you'll start to see us expand into uh, North America, into Asia, into Europe over the next couple of years to, to give ourselves a more local presence. Excellent. And are you also looking at expanding into the, the fleet owners and the ship owners themselves, or as you still primarily see your clients going to be the insurers and the brokers? There's undoubtedly an opportunity to expand into the, the ship owners and fleet owners. Uh, one of the uh, 
Uh, one of the ways that we looked at the market was that uh, in the way it historically worked, you know, risk transferred from one party to another. So someone like Maersk would transfer their risk to it through a broker to an insurer, through a broker, through a reinsurer, etc. Uh, and that worked, and we saw in there a declining level of data. So if you were to go to the reinsurer, the amount of detail that they had was a lot less than the insurer, which was in turn a lot less than the, um, than the insured fleet. So we called this the declining data dependency. Um, because not only did it decline, you also got that data from the person in the, in, in the chain. What we now see is that the data is available to everybody. So it's, you know, we've got like a, a data uh, democracy going on. Uh, so the likes of Maersk, and not picking on Maersk specifically, but as a, as a shipper, they have as much data, uh, probably more data than, than, than anyone else, but they have that data is available, exact data now is available to the insurer, and that exact data is also available to the, the reinsurer. So we've actually seen that our view is that the market's going to, to change in that rather than it being a linear process uh, where one passes to the next, it's almost a network effect where everyone's centered around a common set of data. Uh, and that's going to change some of the roles. And so I think that uh, brokers aren't just going to be there to transfer risk. There are risk advisors. You know, so what, you know, should you keep uh, more risk on your balance sheet? Should you create a captive? What should you seed into the market? Under which conditions? And then, you know, rather than having reinsurance, it's more capital advisory. So, you know, where should you put this capital? Uh, and what return could you get out of it? And what would the product look like? And that very much fits to innovation as well, because uh, we talk a lot about innovation. It tends to be the innovation in technology, but actually we need innovation in, in the insurance product itself. Uh, because if everyone has the same data, you know, we've seen uh, people create automated war policies. But actually, why can't you create a policy which it flexes as your business flexes. So I could have a simple mileage-based hull policy if I wanted to uh, that, that had oh yeah, uplifts in payments for traveling more, but equally you know, returns of premium if I lay off in port automatically. And all of that is possible once you have an accepted view of what the underlying behaviors are. So one of the areas that we've been uh, successful in uh, conveying to the market and actually got some good traction is actually if the brokers have the same data as the underwriters, have the same data as the reinsurance brokers who have the same data as the reinsurers, then actually that product innovation doesn't have to come from one end. It can come from anywhere in the market. An insurer could say, actually, I've got, uh, I've been thinking about how to create a new product. They could create a product which push out through the brokerage channel. So much of the disruption we've seen in the market in insurtechs is actually people coming up with a new insurance product and disrupting that value chain. And I think that that disruption will start to occur in many places, not just from uh, small companies coming into the space, but actually that innovative, you know, creating new products can come from anywhere now with a common set of data. And that, that's very much uh, built into the history of Lloyd's. I was talking to John Kavanagh recently. He's the co-founder of Beat, but has been in the industry for 45 years. And he was pointing out that you know, Lloyd's came up with the original policy for airlines, the original policy for motor. And, and so you sort of think of the challenges they had back then yeah, and they solve them, and people now obviously underwrite those those areas. I, I think the other thing that's worth pointing out, you sort of mentioned it in passing there, but it it can be confusing, that word product. So anybody in the insurance world talks quite comfortably about the product, and the product is actually the insurance offering, not the product of the way that a technologist might think of a product as a bit of software or, or something um, physical. But also the other point you sort of 
as you talk about that, is potentially one of the, the threat might be too strong a word, but people sort of look outside of the conventional insurance in industry and get concerned maybe about Amazon coming in. But I think there is definitely something in there that as the end corporate clients start to understand their own data more, have got access to analytics, have got access to their own capacity and capital, then, yeah, the, in the industry needs to work with them to help them manage the risk, not just look to try and sell them insurance. And it sounds like you're part of that solution because your products can help both the insurers and the brokers, but also the end, end client as well. Uh, could I and just like talk a bit about the team and, and you know, your, the way you've developed and built the business. Uh, you've got so many excellent people here. You know, I know some of them personally you've brought people in from data science, people in from the industry. Like yourself, when you moved from uh, you know, working in an established company uh, with a sort of relatively well-known business, it can be difficult for people coming in. I mean, you've now been around for a number of years, but what is it about what you do at Concerus that people want to come and choose to work for you rather than go into a sort of more conventional organisation? I think that one of the one of the uh, opportunities that people see with us, we certainly convey this, is that. Uh, there are very few times in your career uh, where you have an opportunity to uh, impact a global industry at scale. Uh, and we feel, and I personally feel very privileged to be in a situation where we're driving some change in this industry. And I think we, we, we're driving it for, for, for good. Um, and uh, that sort of persona, as, as it were, comes across. And the, there's a, you know, in our organisation, if you go around, there's a palpable excitement about the value that we are that we're, that we're adding. Um, you know, yesterday at our fleet event, um, it was, there was a stat that was put out that we've created a five-fold improvement in a, the ability to detect crashes in motor fleets. Um, we uh, have put a pricing product out there, yeah, and we are able to see with our customers are sharing that uh, how our pricing model is tracking to claims you know, an order of magnitude better than the traditional ones. So that you know, excitement about the fact that we are genuinely adding value sort of comes through the organization. We're in InsureTech. I've never been a particular fan of the phrase InsureTech. Um, but my, my belief is because I think that all insurance companies are InsureTechs, they just may have the wrong tech. Um, but uh, uh, but it does you know, the, the label does fit because you know if you look at our company if you look at the demographic you know, we have I think 82 people as of today about 30 of those come from the insurance background. Um, one of the surprising things in the last probably six to 12 months is that the number of applications that we get from people you know, seeking an alternative career so moving from an insurer with some technology to a technology company that understands insurance. Uh, and we look, for, uh, we look for a few things. We look for uh, curiosity. Which might probably, probably my biggest hiring characteristic is, does the person, yeah, are they genuinely interested uh, in what we're trying to do? Uh, and what have they done in terms of research, etc.? Uh, we look for energy. Uh, so yeah, the curious and have they, have they you know, are they out there wanting to for whatever reason are they want to their hair is their hair on fire and they're running around trying to make a change yeah, we look for credibility yeah, I want to be able to put people in front of our customers in front of our board in front of our investors and I want them to be you know 
credible. I want them to be someone that they go, these guys, you know, ladies typically know what they're, you know, absolutely know what they're doing. And they want a, a sense of humility. Um, and that, the last one is particularly tricky for me. You know, being humble doesn't, it's not a natural characteristic for me. Um, but actually we want to, we, we want people who are, you know, will be respectful of, of the industry because this is an industry that has worked for 300 years. There are very few other industries that, uh, whilst we say insurance hasn't changed for 300 years, it's like, yes, yeah, because it's worked for 300 years. Yeah. Uh, now we have a technology change, it needs to evolve, but actually recognising that, for me, insurance is an essential industry today uh, and not bashing it, everything that, you know, it's an industry that's broken, it doesn't work, etc. There's a difference between doing that and I'm just trying to understand how it can be improved. So you know, having that sort of respect and humility is a, bit, is a big characteristic for me that I look for. Well, great. Well, thanks for sharing that. There's a lot in there. There's a couple of things I think just worth mentioning. You know, one is, having talked to some of your team here, it's been interesting seeing how they've been able to track people from insurance. You've actually got really good analytics backgrounds. So, and, I, and some of those have come from the underwriting world. If you've been doing this 10, 20 years ago, there, have, you know, there were some, but there were much fewer people who actually had strong analytics coming from underwriting. So it's been interesting that you can bring them in both with domain expertise of insurance, but also they've got the raw skills you need. And the other one but you mentioned as well about one of the things you look for in people, which I think is a really strong acid test when you're interviewing anybody and thinking about hiring them, is, yes, if you take them in to see a client or you take them in to see the person that's spending money with you, are you really proud of that person? And if you sort of look at somebody when you're not too sure if they're the right person and, and you sort of say, well, would I be proud of taking them in to see somebody else? And you don't really feel proud about them. It's normally a signal that they're not they're not the right person. No, I agree wholeheartedly. Yeah, and actually, it, it's interesting. We, the insurance industry, is known for perhaps not being the youngest industry. So it's our target target customers. But you know, we have uh, I think sixty percent of our company uh, is under thirty five. Uh, and one of the things that again I'm most proud of is, is actually we we are we're we're training that next generation of insurance professional. So whilst we're not an insurer, I strongly believe that the next generation will be a hybrid of insurance and technology. You know, they'll be digital natives, and they need to understand both. And I think that you know, some of our, uh, by the time hopefully I'm long retired, I, I think that, that some of the team are going to go on to have quite spectacular careers in the industry. Long retired and enjoying that lifestyle that you thought you might be getting. Uh, yeah, that I years deceived ago. myself <laughs> that I was going to get. Uh, good. Well, you, uh, now I want to come back on something you also mentioned about, uh, as, a, as a lovely phrase about, Everything's in short tech, but not everything's the right tech. I think that helps us all kind of like get away from like this dis discussion or debate around what is in short tech and what isn't. But one of the things I'd be interested to get your views on is, yeah, there is a lot of concern, and to some extent rightly so, about the legacy that the existing insurance organisations have and have to work with. And to the extent, does that actually hinder progress? Does it hinder innovation? It's a big issue for Lloyd's just now. So I'd be kind of interested in your view as you look out there, not just from the what you see at Conserious, but more broadly. Do you think that the insurance industry continue to move at the speed it needs to and innovate and still work out how to live with this legacy technology that's going to take years to move? Or do you think really the only way forward is to actually have to have a clean slate and actually move away in a sort of very significant way from that legacy technology? It's a, it's a, it's a good question. It's a, it's a very long discussion, I'm sure. Um, so I think that there is no doubt that the industry needs to refresh its technology platform, um, and they need to change some of the processes, you know, which are redundant. You, everyone's heard stories of people photocopying iPads, 
and faxing it off to people, etc. That, that, that intuitively doesn't make any sense. So there are undoubtedly pockets of that. Uh, one of your questions, uh, I think you were, you, you were talking earlier, was about favorite books. And there's a book uh, out there called The Innovator's Dilemma. Many people uh, know about uh, the, the, this book that talks about how technology changes business models. And I think that there's no doubt that an external company coming in with a clean slate of technology uh, that's able to build uh, a new business in the insurance market may or may not be in the scalpel um, who you know, got experience of uh, the insurance industry but is just doing a ground-up technology build will absolutely have uh, a, a systemic advantage. Uh, and how the market reinvents itself, I'm, I'm not 100% sure because there are some, some legacy systems. And if you humanize the problem, because it's easy to talk about companies, uh, but the reality is that uh, these companies are run by, by people, and you know, none of these people are, 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 you know, are fools. They understand this. But I think that part of the challenge with modernization is you're asking the executives in this organization to make an investment that will help their successors get their bonuses. And that's a really difficult ask for any individual. You could, I'm confident you could call any chief exec of any insurance and say, do you think that you need to modernize your infrastructure? And they'd go, yes. Yeah. Are you committed to do it? Absolutely. Can you afford it? Well, I can afford it, but it's going to hit my income. So unless I actually think it's not an executive issue, it's a non-executive issue. And arguably, it's even a shareholder issue that says, you know, we need to make an investment that might take us 5, 10, 15 years uh, to, actually, to, to actually pull through. But it's a, you know, as, I, as I started, this is about, are you, going to, are you going to exist? Because undoubtedly, if you exist, you know, the expense ratio in Lloyds cannot remain, uh, the cost of acquisition in Lloyds cannot remain in the mid-40s. The expense ratios of these organisations need to come down from wherever they are, 20% to you know, 15 to 10, whichever. Um, otherwise, the, 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 industry, the industry will survive, but the players are going to change. Yeah, no, I feel we have a much longer debate on that, and certainly something the Japanese historically have been able to do better with that long-term view on investment. Well, good. Well, so just before we wrap up, you've touched on your, your books, and actually, interestingly, you're the second person that's mentioned the innovator's dilemma, so uh, I need now to go and, and read that. But one of the questions yeah, I think is always fascinating from people in your position is you've got so much going on fundraising itself is a full-time job you've got to hire a lot of people how do you balance all the commitments on your time still have time for your family and still stay sane for me routines are is a a big part of my day so i'm a prolific reader uh, i probably read anywhere between two to four books a week uh, whether they be you know, paperback or uh, or audio books um I commute in from Hampshire each day and I use my time on the train. And I schedule time, I come into Waterloo Station and I walk from Waterloo to the office and I schedule calls for my walk. Uh, I schedule specific activities for my train journey on the way home. And uh, I try to make sure that when I'm home, I'm home. Uh, um, so, uh, you know, I'm very committed to my work, but I'm very committed to my, uh, to, to my family as well. Yeah. And actually that goes through the company. So. We have a, a policy. We don't want people to work evenings and weekends. So when you're not working, you should be not working. 
occasionally we might breach that policy because you know, we have customer deadlines and commitments. Um, but for me, the, the thing that I've found to, to make that work is to try and make as many deliberate decisions as possible and not leave it to, not leave it to chance. There's no magic answer, is there? You just have to try and maximise your time. No, well, thanks for sharing for that, because it, uh, sharing that, I think, is one of the biggest challenges people do have as they, as they start to scale. And I think a lot of companies struggle for the founder when they get to sort of start to scale up to be able to manage to do that. Uh, well, Andy, I've asked you a lot of questions, but before we wrap up, is there anything else that you would like to talk about or share that we, we haven't covered? No, I think that, just to reiterate the point that, uh, that I made earlier about you know, being, I, I feel very privileged to be in this position. Um, uh, for the first 18 years of my life, I was told that being disruptive was a problem. Uh, it now turns out that that's a talent. So anyone else who shares that talent out there, I would encourage them to, 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 to follow it through. I think that one of the, the big lessons that I've learned is that actually if you can apply yourself uh, yeah, with, with, with intelligence and diligence and genuine desire to want to add value, I think that you can, you know, you, you can achieve a lot. You know, and it, the same is true of your, your own organisation with, with, with Intertech London. Uh, you know, I go along to the events and I remember some of the early events where there were a dozen people milling around trying to work out what they were going to do. Now you're having to successfully go to bigger and bigger venues. Um, and yeah, especially as we're in insurance, insurance is a, is a, is a you know, multi-century old industry. So if you expect it to change overnight, you're going to be, going to be wrong. But I think that, uh, again, applying something with diligence and uh, a, a belief and listening to the people that should listen to and ignoring the people that you shouldn't. I don't know how you tell the difference between those, by the way. Um, but I think you can, you, you can achieve lots. So I think if anyone's out there not wanting a lifestyle business, I would encourage them to go for it. Good. Well, Andy, that's tremendous. And thank you, yes, for your support for Instead London, yeah, both for turning up, for allowing your people to speak on stage. You've got Chris Gill coming up in uh, March for our motor event and, uh, and for you there as well. Uh, it's been tremendous. I mean, a lot of people, as I mentioned earlier, look at what you've been doing and learn a lot from it. And, and, frankly, and frankly, get inspired. You've tackled a really difficult problem. You've showed you can get clients. And actually, the other thing that you've also showed is you can get clients that are willing to be mentioned, which is often a, often a problem. A lot of companies at early stage sign up clients but actually the clients are a bit nervous about the future of the company and I think it's a great statement that when your clients are actually willing to have their names put out there so you know so many fronts well done and uh, you know really look forward to seeing how things develop from here on. Well thank you watch this space we have a couple more client announcements coming out which will be surprising for everybody I think. Excellent thank you. If you're enjoying the podcast, then please do help us by spreading the word. You can find each episode on the website along with our write-up of the event. We'd love your comments. Check out my post each week at my LinkedIn page, Matthew Grant, and do add your thoughts there. And finally, let us know who you'd like to hear from on our podcast. We're casting the net fairly wide, so geography and industry is not a barrier. All we want are people with great stories and maybe those that might want to sign up as corporate members. That's it for this week. Thank you.